0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Tonight I want to um, start the talk with a story that some of you know of uh, Mullah Nasruddin, the um, Sufi eccentric, wise man, fool who um, was going back and forth across the border between Persia and Turkey. And each time he'd go across with his donkey and the straw on the donkey's back and he'd be searched by the border patrol on both sides and uh, nothing could be found. But each time as he made the trip. His clothes were a bit spiffier and uh, they had a sense that he was smuggling something. And this went on weeks and months. Every time he'd be searched very carefully, his donkey would be searched, the straw, the donkey's back, looking for some kind of jewels or contraband to, um, uh, to be smuggling. And they could never find anything and finally a number of months later one of the customs officials saw Nasruddin in the bazaar and said, listen, I've retired from my position. I have a pension. I don't need any money. I'm not looking for any bribe. We know that you were smuggling something every time we could searched you and searched the donkey and searched the straw and we could never find anything. Please, it's driving me crazy. Please tell me, what was it that you were smuggling? I won't tell a soul. And Nasruddin looked at him and he said, It's simple, I was smuggling donkeys. (laughs) And I tell that story because sometimes the most obvious thing right under our nose is the precious jewel that we can't see because we're looking for some other idea of what will really be um, the gem, the richness that we're looking for. And this is so in our spiritual practice. Tonight I wanna talk about some precious jewels that aren't usually thought of as jewels, but rather seen often as obstacles, as hindrances, as things that get in the way of the meditation, as difficult energies, and they are common to all of us. In the classical teachings, they're called the five hindrances, although that that word is, uh, is not one that I particularly am fond of because when they are understood, when they're seen clearly, they become the very fertile ground for growth and awakening. Last night, Carol talked about how in each moment there is pleasantness and unpleasantness or neutrality in experience. And when we can truly connect with what's happening, There's no problem. We don't get lost in the story. We don't wish for our experience to be different. We can simply see this unpleasant moment in our bodies or in our hearts as unpleasant, and we can be open to it. There is that possibility. Or when we see something quite pleasant, instead of grasping on, there is the possibility of really appreciating this moment as it is fully connecting with it and keeping that same space of awareness that doesn't react. And it's wonderful when that happens. It is a true possibility. This is what we're cultivating and training in our our hearts as we sit and practice together. But. In all reality, uh, it doesn't always work that way. That when you simply see an unpleasant experience, you can feel the pain in your shoulder and notice, oh, this is burning, this is twisting, Ah, isn't this interesting? Sometimes as you might have noticed in these first few days, there's an added reaction to the experience. That says I don't like this or this is scary or what am I doing here or this is fantastic now I finally got the meditation and we get hooked in those responses when we don't see them clearly they obscure wisdom and understanding. But when we can become more and more familiar with these responses and these reactions, then they don't obscure us. Then the very things that we usually get lost in become the doorway to understanding how the human mind and the human heart gets lost and confused. And this is not just for people who are new to the meditation practice. This isn't just a beginner's talk. Now, you might be out there thinking, oh, this is my 37th retreat. I've heard a talk on the five hindrances. Well, if you are done with them, (laughs) let me know. (laughs) I want to speak with you. For me, it's a very great comfort to know that they've been talked about since people have had minds and hearts and bodies and they are energies that we all uh, can continually understand with a deeper appreciation. Uh, This is from Ajahn Sumedho I was was reading today, this wonderful uh, monk who studied in Thailand and has centers in England and uh, all around the world. He says, I spent my first year as a Samanera living in a monastery in northeast Thailand. I was not compelled to do anything other than just live in a little hut. The monks brought me food every day, and as I could speak no Thai and nobody spoke any English, I didn't have to talk to anyone. The senses were therefore not stimulated to any great extent, and so... Sensory deprivation set in, and I found myself becoming very tranquil. So tranquil, in fact, that I attained great states of bliss and ecstasy. Sounds good, huh? I'd sit on the porch of my little hut, and tears of love would well up in my eyes for the mosquitoes which were biting me. (laughs) I could think in abstract terms about all beings everywhere and feel great love for them too. I even forgave my enemies and those who caused me suffering in the past. I could entertain these high-minded feelings for all beings mainly because I was not having to live with them. (laughs) Then one day I had to go to the immigration office to renew my visa and travel to a place called Nang Kai where you cross the Mekong River to go into Laos. Because of my new sensitive state as I walked to town, I could see things more clearly than ever before. I saw the sorrow and the anguish in the faces of the people. And then when I walked into the immigration office, I felt this iron curtain of hatred forming in front of me. I found out later that one of the leading monks of the province had ordered the officials to give me a visa and this was not quite in line with the regulations and so it forced the officials into a position that was truly quite unfair, and because of this they had a definite aversion to me and would not grant me a visa, which was very confusing for me because of my heightened state of awareness. (laughs) The feeling of great love I had for all beings began to fade away very quickly. (laughs) By the time I got back to the monastery, I was in a Frantic mental state. I went to my cootie and spent the next three days just calming down all that had been aroused during that hour's visit to the immigration. There's something very romantic about living the isolated life. It's so peaceful not to be exposed to the misery of people or have your senses excited by their actions. Nature itself is very peaceful, very pleasant to be with. Even the mosquitoes, which you might think must be terribly annoying are not anywhere really nearly as annoying as people are. (laughs) Actually, it takes much less skill to live with mosquitoes than with another person. And then finally he says, from all of these experiences, I was beginning to see that the way to enlightenment did not lie in being shut off from everything that was unpleasant, but rather through learning to understand all that we find unpleasant or difficult. Those particular conditions have been set there for a purpose, to teach us, no matter how much we don't want them, and would rather like things otherwise, somehow they will persist in our lives until we have understood and thus transcended them. So what are these common difficult energies that we all work with? there are big five primary ones. The first of these is the energy of wanting, of desire or attachment. And it has a whole range from a mild um, interest and enjoyment and then wanting to hold on to a grasping, and a craving, and lust, and obsession. You know what that's like? (laughs) Have you noticed when wanting comes, when that attachment comes, you're sitting here minding your own business, and all of a sudden a thought comes to you of something that you want, some experience in the meditation, it can get subtler and subtler. If I could only get quiet like I was the last time. And then all of a sudden, anything that's happening other than that doesn't count. Or it's in the way, or somehow you're failing. Or there can be a kind of tunnel vision when the wanting focuses on something. For instance, you know that, that period after about, oh, 35, 40 minutes when you know the meditation is going to be ending sometime in the near future. And there can be lots of different sounds going on, birds chirping and the wind rustling, but there's only one sound that counts. It cuts us off from everything else. That wanting, we become very focused on it. And it's not that it's bad. It's not that it's wrong or evil. It's simply that it prevents us from seeing things clearly. And what it does is it keeps us looking outside of ourselves for some sense of completion or peace or happiness. If I have this experience, then I'll be happy. And because every experience is transitory, there's nothing that's going to do it. So it keeps us looking outside and it's inherently unsatisfying because there's nothing that will quite do it. And this is how wanting works and traps us. This is what the Buddha called the second noble truth. The cause of our suffering is wanting things to be different than the way they are. So it's very essential to understand this. Say somebody is burning with desire. Well, there can be an inspiration, an inspiring goal, but when we are so obsessed with ambition, for instance, or so much holding on to an idea or expectation that will, we think, fulfill us, then it's very agitating. You know what that feels like. Then we can, we have, there's no peace to be found in this moment. So this is the first of the difficult energies. The second is the, um, is the opposite of attachment or wanting. The quality of aversion. The energy that wants to push away the unpleasant. And as was spoken of last night, there is deep, deep conditioning to want to avoid the unpleasant. And when we take a look at it, that movement that contracts away from experience, whether it's irritation or annoyance or anger or aggression or cruelty, is very painful. And again, it keeps us from seeing clearly what's actually going on so we can respond with some skill. It's a very agitated state of mind and in some ways it's not quite as seductive as the wanting but sometimes people get so used to that mode that that's the way they feel alive. You know, righteous indignation or their mode for some people are, is more on the aversive side than than the greedy side. The greedy side. What's wrong with this picture? And so you go looking for, you know, what the problem is, and it can be very painful. So that's the second difficulty. Third one, common to uh, to meditators, especially on the first few days of a retreat is what is classically called sloth and torpor. Good old S and T, you know. That feeling of dullness, of real low energy, that sluggishness. It takes a little while to get in touch with our own energy on retreat, and sometimes these first few days it feels like you're kind of slogging through, you know, marshlands and you wish you had some kind of magical machete to just clear away everything. And there's that quality that comes that the mind says, I just don't want to do it. You know? I've been mindful for the last 30 minutes. Do I have to do it anymore? You know? Or I've been doing the sitting. Now the walking, let me just go for some tea. Let me just take a break. You know, I've earned it. You know? It's so hard. You know? That sloth and torpor or sometimes it's a, it comes as a dullness of mind, sometimes it comes as a laziness of, of heart. Again, it keeps us from seeing things clearly. And it's very common to go through what's called the the nods. A classic case of the nods, where there you are, all the way down and up, you know, all the way down and up, you know, and you say, "What the hell is the point of doing this?" You know, I know I have spent hours and hours, weeks, in if you put it all together, probably in an upright position fast asleep, or my cushion, (laughs) just just nodding down and up. And it makes you wonder, is there a point to it? So this is a very common energy, and if you're experiencing this in the first few days, you probably have a lot of company, even though it seems like everybody else is (laughs) sitting up there, (laughs) so calm and peaceful inside. Okay, so that's the third. The fourth energy is, again, the opposite of this sluggishness, which is also very common at the beginning of a retreat, and that is the energy of restlessness and agitation. Very, very um, challenging for many people. Especially at the beginning, and it's amazing how, we were talking about this in one of the groups, how one moment it feels like you're just dropping off asleep, and the next moment you're <laughs> feeling really agitated and antsy, and you're going to pop out of your skin, and then you fall asleep. You know. It goes back and forth like that. How do we do that? don't know, but it's very natural for that settling in period to go through these changes of energy it take a while to land in the present moment with an alert and balanced attitude. Okay, so that's the fourth. About restlessness, sometimes it's an energy and sometimes it also has to do with thoughts that we have, that we've brought with us to the retreat. A lot of unresolved business, things that have happened in our past that we replay over and over, very often associated with restlessness, feelings of guilt and regret, oh, why did I do that, and keeping on replaying that tape over and over, as if somehow if we keep on replaying it, we can get it right. And it doesn't work out that way, and it seems so real those thoughts about the past and we keep on plaguing ourselves with it. When you think about it, where is the past? Where is it? Can you turn around quickly and grab it and change it? The past is a thought that's happening right now in the present moment that we keep on creating. And on the, the other side, we have this amazing capacity to think of things that haven't happened yet. Picture the the worst case scenario and then start worrying about it. What if that happens? It sounds kind of strange or funny when we think about it, but how many times we do that? What if that happens? What if the next meditation, I really blow it? Know? Or what if the next six days are going to be like this? <laughs> you know? Or what if when I get home I find out that this happened or that happened? You know, I come from a lineage of worriers. It was part of my upbringing that you really weren't putting in your time unless you were worrying. You know? And it's just so painful. Where is the future? It's a thought that's happening right now in the present moment that we create and then get bothered by. So this is the fourth difficult energy. And then the fifth, common to most all meditation students. And that is the energy of doubt. I just can't do this. Everybody else is getting it and it's just not for me. Or, this is really weird. You know, there must be a different way to become spiritually awakened than being a zombie in the desert. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> or doubts about the teachings. You know, well, What is this business? You don't exist. It sure feels that way when I pinch myself. You know. All sorts of theoretical and philosophical debates happen inside the mind that say, I don't know, I don't know what I'm getting into. Or doubts about the teachers. You know, who are these people anyway? Do they have it together? Let's see. And when doubt hits, again, it's a very incapacitating energy because it, it prevents us, not only from seeing clearly, but having the, the confidence or the faith to take the next step, to look for ourselves. So these are the big five. Wanting or attachment, aversion, that dullness, sloth and torpor, restlessness, agitation, and doubt. And when I talk about them, I also want to include in this talk all the other difficult emotions that come up. These are just the ones that are named in classical uh, texts. But we can include in the difficult energies fear, which is a kind of aversion, and uh, loneliness and unhappiness and sometimes even bliss and joy gets a little bit confusing and we get lost in those too. When we have a big emotional storm that comes over us and we can't see so clearly, there's something that needs to be done to work with it in a more skillful way so that it doesn't cloud our understanding. The thing about all of these Hindrances, difficult energies, the thing to keep in mind about them is that they are impermanent. They don't last. This is something that we need to see for ourselves again and again and again. But it's true. Have you had an anger that has stayed? Maybe you think of something quickly right now and get angry again. But every anger that we've had has come and gone. Every doubt that we've had has come and gone. And there have been moments of peace or kindness or friendliness or joy. They come for a while, confuse us, and then they pass. They are impermanent and they are impersonal. And when I say they are impersonal, I mean, really, that they don't belong to us. We don't invite them in. We don't have control over them. They're not me or mine. You don't say, oh, I think I'll have a good bout of doubt right now, you know. (laughs) Let's really get into doubt. It just comes on its own. You don't invite it. It's here for a while and then it does its thing and then goes. An image that uh, that I find helpful is that these energies and all the uh, the emotions are like changing energies in the weather. Sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's stormy, sometimes windy out here or foggy or rainy, and you don't expect it to be sunny and bright all the time. In fact, we get into problems when it's sunny and bright for too long a time as people who've lived in California over the last (laughs) decade know. know. It's important that sometimes it gets rainy and foggy. And it's the same way with us. We are these energy systems, life expressing itself through us. And it's not realistic or appropriate to think that we should be sunny and bright all the time. I'm a sunny and bright, happy person, yes. You know. And when there's some kind of cloud or fog or storm going on that we've somehow blown it and done something wrong. We go through the whole range of human experience. And that's one of the the fascinating adventures of doing this meditation. You discover the whole range of human experience, like the Buddha said, In this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma, the whole of the universe of life is revealed. And here's our laboratory, our investigator, our investigation field to find out what it means to be alive, what it means to be human, to have a heart, to have a mind, to have a body. There's a simile that's given in the teachings for these hindrances called the Simile of a Clear Pond. The clarity when we are not obscured is the image of being able to see straight down through to the bottom of this clear pond and it's wonderful. The world opens up and is revealed. With the energy of desire or wanting, attachment, it's like somebody throwing in beautiful dyes into the pond and becoming entranced. Wow! Look at that! And in that, being enthralled, you don't see to the bottom, to the depth. The energy of aversion, anger, is like the pond that's on a boiling hot spring that's bubbling constantly. And again, you can't see clearly to the bottom. Sloth and torpor is like weeds thickly growing from the bottom and just obscuring everything, maybe with some moss on the top, and really thick, you can't see. Restlessness, agitation, worry, nervousness, anxiety is like wind sweeping across the surface of the pond, a wind swept Very superficial and scattered energy that, again, prevents you from seeing clearly. And the um, energy of doubt is like somebody taking a a stick and churning up all the mud from the bottom and just becomes murky and unclear. Kind of takes the personal out of it when you have that kind of an image. This is not just your unique experience. These are mind states and emotional states, heart states that are felt by all beings. Okay, so now the question is, how do I use them as jewels in my practice? What do I do when they come? (coughs) Excuse me. And the answer is, guess what? The same thing that you probably have been hearing over and over these last few days. Be mindful. Use them as an opportunity to understand how they operate, how they grow, how they obscure, how they change, how they pass away. Instead of wishing to be rid of them going right into it and feeling the experience. And as you do that, something amazing starts to happen. You change your relationship to them so that they don't become enemies, they don't become problems, but rather they become, as one teacher calls it, manure for awakening. The very shit in our minds. You know, it's fertilizer for growth. Okay, so how do we do that? How do you become mindful of a difficult feeling or emotion? It's very difficult to be mindful of the story because while you're in the middle of the story it just keeps playing more and more and it feels very real. So, An important piece in all of this is to move from the story level of the emotion, of the aversion, or the doubt, or the restlessness, to go to something much more tangible, much more real and based in our actual experience And one place that most people find helpful is feeling the energy in the body. How do you experience this doubt or this wanting or this aversion? What does it feel like? Where do I feel it? And perhaps as you are grounded in that experience, start to feel the mood in the mind. an amazing thing starts happening when you not only give permission for it to be here, but bring a curiosity to it. It says, okay, let me feel this. In the moment that you do that, that you welcome it, that you start to investigate and explore, you're not adding on a layer of resistance or fear. And that right away, is. Carol was talking about, is not adding that second arrow onto the experience, but rather being open and and having an attitude that says, okay, let's feel this. And in that openness and willingness to feel, things are going through their own cycles. Sometimes they get intense, more intense, sometimes they stay the same, sometimes they go away. Sooner or later, they all go away. But the tricky thing is you can't be paying attention in order for it to go away. It knows. You can't trick it. Mindfulness means giving a genuine permission for these things to be as they are. Not only are you not adding on that resistance, but then you get a chance to understand and explore. I'll just take you through a a short guided um, experience of this, especially since there's a lot of uh, newer people here. Just go inside for a moment and if you've got one of the difficult energies right now, wanting or aversion or sluggishness or restlessness or doubt, then you can use that. If not, then you might bring to mind some situation in the last day or two or in your life that has brought up some difficult energies. And if you like, you can make a picture so that it becomes more more real. What's some circumstance, either here or in your life issue? Just come. Now, if you can get in touch with the feeling that comes up with this picture. Feeling of doubt or anger or whatever it is, sadness. And feel it somewhere in your body. Where does your body call out with this feeling? Constriction in the throat or strange sensation in the belly or the chest? And if you can, for just a moment, let the energy be here. Give permission for it to be here. And then, if possible, bring an interest, bring a curiosity to it. It's just exploring the quality of that energy. What does it feel like? Is it tight? Is it dense? Is it heavy? Notice if it changes one moment to the next or stays just the same. For a few moments, you might let your attention feel the mood in the mind. What does it feel like? Is it tight? Is it dark? Is it swirling or heavy? And again, let it be however it is and bring a kind awareness to it, just a chance to be familiar with it. Now come back again one more time the sensations in the body. Notice what's happening. It might be like it was. It might have changed. Whatever is okay. And now, come back and know that you're sitting here and breathing. Become centered in that. And then when you'd like, you can gently open your eyes. You feel it for just a few moments and let it be here. It's actually quite interesting when you start to explore these difficult energies. Sometimes they can be so intense that it's hard to stay with for a long time. There's a wave of fear or of of doubt. You don't have to slay the dragon just to touch it a little bit. Okay, for the next minute, for the next half minute, let's just feel this a little bit, just around the edges. And then you can always come back and feel yourself breathing and and regroup and touch it a little bit more. Each time you start to do that, you are learning a new way to hold it, a new way to relate to it. I want to share with you a um, uh, a letter that, that somebody um, wrote to me about how she was learning to work more and more with feelings in a mindful and skillful way, having gone through some great difficulties. Her uh, mother having uh, lung cancer and another friend dying of... Um, leukemia and a relationship ending. She was going through a lot. This is uh, in, her, in her home life. And she wrote to me, um, going through all of these heavy things, but there was a real joy to this letter. As she said, meditation has taught me much about riding waves. I used to endure pain, which for me means hardening up my emotional muscles so I can't be touched, held, or supported during a storm. Instead, I would suppress, repress, and keep isolated. Now, I will let my body say what's going on as sore shoulders cry for a hug or a headache shows my level of preoccupation. My heart beats through, the, through my chest with grief, And the mind watches on from a respectful distance, processing with some neutrality and noting the flow. It's possible to feel a genuine connection with the grief or the fear or the the longing and have it being held in a space of awareness that's not confused. So, it's the beautiful balance between a genuine connection and understanding and and exploration and a place of balance and centeredness that can hold it. When you are aware of fear, for instance, suppose there's a great storm of fear that comes and there is an awareness, oh, fear. The awareness. That which is aware, is not afraid. The awareness is holding it in a bigger space. And that fear has a chance to express itself, be felt, be understood, and then change into whatever it does. So this is the primary strategy for dealing with all of these difficult energies being mindful of it without an agenda, without an expectation, just being with it as it is, if possible. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes the energy is so strong that you touch it for a little while and then it feels like it's a bit much. And so in those moments, there are specific ways to work with each of these energies that I'd like to briefly touch on. (coughs) The first, that of wanting. okay. Primary strategy, feel the wanting. What does it feel like? For me, it's sometimes like this claw coming out of my my gut just wanting the next thing or being pulled from like a noose from my my nose. Mm. Okay, what does that feel like? Mm, Wow, feel that wanting. Sometimes it's just so intense. Some reflections that the Buddha gave. One is reflecting on impermanence. The very thing that you want right now, the thing that's going to really do it for you. Okay? What's it going to feel like six months from now? You know? That next ice cream cone, you know? come and gone, or the next car, or job or some some situation that you think will do it has any of them ever done it before think of all the great wonderful gourmet meals or tactile experiences and massages and love making or whatever where are they now <laughs> it's not gonna do it I guarantee you, it's not going to scratch the itch to the point that you say, yes, finally, my life is complete. It doesn't happen. So when you're in the throes of this wanting, it can be a very useful reflection to think, if you get this, is it going to do it? What's it going to be like? Six months from now or... A year from now, or two years from now, there'll be just so many more wantings between now and then. Sometimes monks are are instructed to go sit by charnel grounds and see bodies in various states of decay when they have a lot of lust, saying, oh, I really... I'm fantasizing about this body and then you see what the body is and oh, this is... It kind of helps to lessen the the romanticism. That's the extreme reflection on impermanence. Another great aid in the wanting mind is a sense of restraint. A quality that can say, wait, will I live if I don't have this? If I don't go for my third cup of tea this morning, notice what happens as you say, I just have to have that cup of tea. As an experiment, see what it's like to say, oh, okay, let's feel this. Oh, I really want that tea. And then after a while, it comes and it goes. Restraint can be a great empowerment to see that you have the capacity to do without. <clears throat> there's a phenomenon on retreats called Vipassana Romance or VR for short where in your silence and strict meditation not making eye contact to disturb others and there's just somebody who catches your eye, and you go through whole fantasies about what it would be like to meet them at the end of the retreat and get into a relationship, it gives you tremendous um, hmm, pain and opportunity to notice how the wanting mind works. Notice what happens as you're just you have this great urge to look around you, you know, to check out if your beloved is there. You know. See what happens when you don't give into it. Okay, will I die if I don't take a look? On one retreat, I had this experience. This was here, about 20 years ago. And there were a few people, you know, out of 150 people, you know, a couple of people caught my eye. Well, it was. Somebody who really did, and somebody almost, not quite as much, and then third, you know. uh, Oh, there's there's number three, you know. (laughs) And what happened was, it was really interesting, you know. After a week, the person who really was my VR left the retreat. And what was interesting, I didn't keep on thinking about this person. Everybody else moved up a notch. <laughs> it, was, it was so clear that it wasn't about that thing out there. It's just this energy that's looking for something to complete and to land on. Okay, on to the, the next aversion, okay? There's the converse of Vipassana Romance, or VR. There's what's called the Vipassana Vendetta, (laughs) or VV. And somebody has signed up on this retreat to make your life miserable. (laughs) That's what they're here for. Mm -hmm. The way they walk and the way they breathe and the way they dress and the way they eat their food and just everything about them bugs you. And if they weren't here, you'd be enlightened by now. It's a wonderful opportunity, again, to see what we do, how we externalize and say, there's the problem. Okay. That person has been put here for you to help you wake up, okay? and if you can see that they are the dharma's gift to you to see your edges and how you lose it, it's a wonderful um, opportunity. How do I feel that aversion? Okay, that tightening, that constricting, that pulsing in my temples? You know, as as they go by. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <clears throat> Sometimes, again, the mindfulness doesn't stay throughout the experience and you get lost. Okay, Or you remember something that's really upsetting to you. Somebody did something to you and they might be having a grand time on a beach in Hawaii, and there you are thinking about them and just getting incensed. You know, they did that to me. It can be very painful and unpleasant. We can spin our wheels over and over with that anger. Okay, first we feel it. If we can't feel it mindfully, then there are other ways to work. One reflection that the Buddha talked about as the antidote to aversion and anger, is loving-kindness. And so it might be useful as a second tack to just do a little bit of loving-kindness. Not necessarily for that person. That's advanced loving-kindness. But for yourself, for going through all of this pain. Or for somebody else who opens up your heart. You know, just for a moment bring somebody into your heart and notice oh may you be happy may you be peaceful may you feel my love for you and in a few moments you start to soften a bit and then maybe come back to that aversion with a bit more spaciousness another reflection when somebody has done something that's hurtful is and they're They are, say, an unskillful or uh, person who causes a lot of pain around them. Just imagine what it would be like to be in their mind all the time. In one moment, that reflection can cause a lot of compassion to arise. Oh, yeah, must be painful to be that nasty. I only have to deal with it when I'm with them. They have to feel that energy all the time. So some loving kindness or some compassion that sees people do unskillful things because they don't see clearly. And in a few moments of understanding that other person's reality, you might not like what they did and you might be angry, but there's a possibility of forgiveness just seeing their confusion. On to the third, sloth and torpor. Okay? If you can, feel it. Get to know what Sleepy Buddha is like. Okay? Here we are going to sleep. Going to sleep. You ever? I used to do that when I was a kid, try to watch myself fall asleep. How do I fall asleep? And I'd be up until 3 in the morning, you know? Oh my God. If you can. Notice how you go to sleep. If you can't, you will probably have fallen asleep and then you wake up. And the important thing is not to spend any time beating yourself up for having fallen asleep. You just start in that moment. There are some other things that you can do that can help with that sleepiness. One is sitting up straight. If you're feeling tired right now, just notice what happens if you have your energy up. So please sit up. Actually, it's uh, it, I would like people to sit up for the Dharma talks as, as, uh, um, as a way to respect the Dharma. Just notice what happens as you sit up. Okay. Opening up your eyes, taking some deeper breaths. Standing is a fine meditation. When you're doing the walking, Go at a bit faster pace so it's not so sedentary and just generate some energy that way. It's all quite workable. You just do the best you can. The next one, restlessness. Okay. When restlessness comes, feel it as an energy. Let it be the meditation. Okay, restlessness, restlessness. How do I feel it? buzzing through my body. You might find it helpful to take some deeper breaths as you are sitting here. In a way, expand your vessel so that the container can hold all of that energy. Sometimes I find it helpful just to imagine breathing and sending the energy down into the ground. The earth can hold it. One thing that is not so helpful is to move a lot which would be the thing that you'd want to do when you're restless. Oh, well, maybe if I just move over here. No, over here. Well, I really need this. (laughs) And you become one big fidget. It drives you crazy. So if you do move, be very discriminating about how much you do it, and do it mindfully. Using the breath as a refocus can be a helpful antidote to restlessness. Sometimes people find that counting the breaths can be very useful. In out, counting one, in out two, counting up to ten, and then going back to one again. And if you miss track of the of the count, go back to one. It can be just a, a useful tool to aid in the focus and the concentration. Another um, help with restlessness that I found in my own practice is using Thich Nhat Hanh's gata to bring <laughs> some calm and ease to your, your sitting. As I start the period, usually I'll do these, these five phrases and I'll, I'll share them with you if you'd like. Just taking a deep breath on the first phrase, the first pair of the phrase, uh, first phrase of the pair, and, and an out breath on the next one. In, take a nice deep breath in. Out, and hold it out. Deep, breathe in deeply. Slow, calm, you can breathe in calm. ease, smile, let yourself smile, release, present moment, breathe in, wonderful moment, as you breathe out. Doing that two or three times is a wonderful way to bring about a sense of calm and ease and spaciousness. That's fine. All of these are skillful means that allow us to then meet the moment with mindfulness. Restlessness. If you are restless out of a feeling of remorse or guilt, then you might think of something that you've done that's been a very kind act so you don't beat yourself up all the time. Oh yeah, I did, I did something nice that time. And so it can be a little bit of a balance from the, the self-condemning. You're not all bad. Okay, then on to the last one, the doubt, the doubting mind. If you can... Be mindful of doubt. Get to know it really well. It's an old companion. How do you feel? If you can name it in a very kind way, oh, doubt, 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 and let yourself explore it, it can reveal a lot. It can be a gateway to compassion for when you're around others who are doubting. But if the mindfulness isn't so strong, The antidote to doubt is faith. And you might find it helpful to think of something that's inspiring or someone that's inspiring to you, whether it's the Buddha or Jesus or some great teacher or somebody in your life who has courage that that you aspire to or somebody who believes in you who says, yeah, you can do it, you can do it. And in a few moments, reflecting on that, it can lighten up that heaviness of the doubt. So, these are the five difficult energies. With all of these, they're workable, they're illuminating, they're not the enemy. Each time we can meet it with mindfulness or with other skillful means that allow us then to open up into mindfulness, we're changing our relationship to it, and we start to learn little by little how to hold it with real understanding and compassion. And we see other possibilities. So I close with this passage that I love, uh, that I read from time to time, that describes this whole learning process. Called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. She says, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. (laughs) It's a habit. My eyes are open... I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. And that is the process that we're doing here, spending more and more time particularly...